Well, good morning, everyone. The children can be dismissed for Children's Church. It's a dangerous thing when you're married to the pastor. So. Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. Um, it seems like nature is cooperating with the Christmas season. And it wasn't too bad, right? The roads were just wet, and you could get here safely and enjoy a little snow uh, on your way. Last week, we began looking into the Christmas story with the perspective of what Christ provides in his coming to earth. And we've been looking at this all-too-familiar story from that perspective of what gifts does God provide in sending us his son, Jesus. And last week, we considered uh, the hope that we have because God came in the flesh. If you remember, that hope that is brought to us is not just a hope in the sense of the season of Christmas, but the Christmas story reminds us that Jesus came to redeem us from our sin and that he will return again to gather us to be with him. Jesus is the source of our hope. He is the only source of our hope in a broken world. And because this hope is certain to happen, because it is based on the sure promises that God has given, we can rest in the gift of His Son. Now this week, we want to consider another provision of Christmas. This week, we're looking into the coming of Christ in His first advent as we consider the gift of His love, the love that God has displayed to us when Jesus came. Now, in our world today, there's a lot of love language that is being used. A lot of people demanding love and basically wanting us to give them what they want whenever they want it wherever they want it, without any repercussions. And at the root of this lustful kind of love is a distorted view that is tainted by sin. But Jesus came to manifest, to put on display an unaltered love, a love that transcends the emotions, a love that moves us beyond the feelings that we have, and a love that is rooted in the truth of who God is. It's selfless. True love is not rooted in what we can get out of someone, but it is rooted in the selfless love and act of service that God has shown us through giving us His Son. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You get the sense that without the faithful love of God, we can't live. Right? John said that in in verse 9 of this passage. Jesus was sent as a gift of love so that we can live. Now, I don't know if 
you can truly understand that. I was trying to wrap my mind around that thought this week, but just the idea that before a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're considered dead. Like there, there might be air or oxygen coming in and, 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 and they're breathing and, and they're moving around and they're thinking thoughts and saying things and living life, but from a very real perspective, they're doing all those things under the perspective that they are dead. They're not alive. They're not truly living. They're shackled and chained to the weight of sin. They are spiritually separated from God. And John says that as a gift of love for us, God removed the barrier. He came to us. He was sent into the world. Sent. There's purpose behind that. This isn't accidental. This isn't, uh, must be a plan B kind of thing. This is the sure plan of a sovereign God who loves his creation. And then verse 10 reveals something about this love. God did not send his son to the lovable, right? Not that we loved God. So much of our relationships in this world is based on mutual love, mutual respect, mutual coming together. There was none of that in the Christmas story. There was no one who was saying, you know, I deserve God to do this. There was no one that was seeking out God in the way of for God to say, oh, okay, everything is great. So here for you is my gift. God looked at the fallen humanity of his creation with a broken heart and said, let me do for you what you cannot. And let me show you just how much I love you. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Always remember that God loved first. Why? Because his love for us is not based on how good we are. It's not based on performance. It's not based on how good we can be. It's not based on all of the boxes that we can check in his eyes. God loves first. And then, John inspired by the Spirit, tells us that when Jesus was sent, he was sent for what theologians call a big-picture salvation reason. John says that Jesus is our propitiation. You know what that word means, right? You use that word all the time. Well, the word propitiation means satisfaction, appeasement, When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the demands of a holy God. The perfect one for the imperfect ones so that their sins could be forgiven. Jesus is our propitiation. Think with me back into the Old Testament and just consider the the demands of the law and the sacrifices that were given when those laws were broken. The high priest would go in every year and offer 
blood, blood of a perfect lamb, a, a spotless lamb on the mercy seat. And that priest could not stay in that holy place where the mercy seat was. He would go in one time and then leave. And every year this had to be done to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. But when Jesus came and he was sent into the world as God's gift of love, and he died on the cross once and for all, his blood was shed. There's no need for a high priest anymore because Jesus is our high priest. And there's no need for a holy place because the veil of the curtain is torn and we can enter in to the holy place. And it's not every year that our sins are forgiven. It's once and done forever. Church, if anything this morning, if you are a person that is weighed down by the guilt and shame of sin and you are just kind of wanting to make it through one more Sunday morning, one more service, and you're thinking, how could God love a person like me? The Christmas story is the reminder that God does love a person like you, and he has set you free, and you are forgiven. And when you are free, you are free to move from that old way of sin and death, and you are given new life in his son. And now it's for you to live that out. Jesus was sent because God loved us and so that we could live. He was the appeasement of the demands of a holy God and was punished for our sins. Wrapped up in the mystery of a baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago is so that our sins could be forgiven and we could receive the love of God. But what I'd like to do this morning is turn our attention not to 1 John 4 alone, but to Philippians 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2 as we consider how, in a practical way, this kind of selfless love is worked out to us. We know that Jesus was sent as God's gift. That God loved the world, that he gave us his son. Philippians 2 now draws us into the perspective of the attitude of Jesus as he was sent to us. And so let's pray and let's ask God to teach our hearts as we interact with this amazing truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have in your word this morning to hear from you to have your spirit teach us. God, I pray that uh, the, the words that come from you and the things that need to last in our lives would be said and everything else would just fall away. Father, fill me with your spirit that I might um, just be the messenger of what you want this congregation to hear. And remind us again of your selfless love, your amazing love, your great love. Fill our hearts with hope that causes us to rejoice in the gift of our Savior and challenge us as we are called to follow this example of selfless love. 
to love well to those around us and to each other and be glorified in our midst. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now behind the coming that John explains in 1 John 4 is the Christmas story of Matthew and Luke. And, and, and un- behind that story in the Gospels is the attitude of what motivated Jesus to come to us. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allows us to capture the attention of what was motivating Jesus when he came to us 2,000 years ago. That attitude that we feel this Christmas season, a God who loves us and has demonstrated that love by the gift of his son to die on the cross for our sins, the same love that is in Jesus, who is God, moved him to a position of humility to serve, to serve us as our sinless sacrifice. The attitude that Jesus displayed in coming to us in the gift of love is nothing but an attitude of humility. That's what's motivating Jesus in coming to us. Paul's picture of the selfless love of Christ is rooted in an exhortation to the church in Philippi. The larger context of Philippians is rooted in in two real thoughts, the themes of unity and joy. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is to challenge them to press on in unity and joy. And their joy is found in the Lord. And next week, we're going to consider the joy of the Christmas story. But this idea of unity comes in the, in the frame of a exhortation because Paul knew enough about this church to know that there were struggles and fissures that were existing in the church where there were fractures between people. In fact, we read in Philippians chapter 4, he calls out two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, listen, you got to come together. You got to press on. You got to push aside those things that are prone to divide God's people. And he calls us to consider the gift of Jesus as the ultimate illustration of selflessness. And he writes this book and then tucked in as this wonderful, amazing example of who Jesus is, and then he says, be like him. Church, everything that we're going to read this morning about the deep theological truths of who Jesus is is rooted in the truth that we are called to action. When when we read and come in contact with what we're going to look at in verses 5 through 10, the biggest takeaway is that you need to follow his example. And so we need to consider what Paul is saying here as he writes this letter. And so let me read just the first four verses of Philippians 2 so that you can enter into the context of what we're going to read about our Savior, Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 2, 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Paul says, basically, if there's anything inside of you that cares about the love of God, if there's any motivation, any heart inside of you, right, that is beating for the things of God, 
If the truth of God's love moves the needle of your heart, Paul says, make my joy complete and be unified. Be unified in the Spirit. Be focused on one purpose. And what is that purpose? It's not us. Life is not about us. It's not, it's not about me and my wants. It's about a great God, our creator, that loves us and has called us into a relationship with him and invites us to be a part of his family and to join him in his purpose to bring his glory to the nations. Paul goes on, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. So here's the exhortation. Do nothing. And what is the do nothing? Well, very simply, stop being selfish. And you would think, well, this is a letter written by an apostle to a church. Shouldn't they have it figured out that they are not called to selfishness? Well, I would love to think that that is true 2,000 years ago, and I would love to think that it's true today, but it's not. And why do I know that personally? Because I can be a selfish person. And if it's just me, maybe you're with me on that. And so Paul writes us and exhorts us to say, listen, as we relate to each other in the body of Christ, hide yourself in the Savior. Don't be in a position where you are doing everything so that you can gain. And then he calls us to develop an attitude. An attitude of selflessness that is rooted in love for one another. Now, why does this matter on Christmas or in the Christmas season as we consider the gift of Jesus? I think in a very real way, we know that the season brings with it some difficulties between family members and friends, right? We can't assume that everything is perfect with every person that is in our life. There's friction, there's challenges, there's, there's times when we don't see eye to eye. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those people in your life that push your buttons, that whether or not they are coming from a position of always wanting to be right or you're receiving it from a position where you always feel you have to be right. There are people that challenge us. Seasons like this where families come together because that's what we're supposed to do, but right under the surface, there's just this awkwardness, uneasiness. I mean, some of you might have great and encouraging times, but others are really looking forward to Christmas thinking, can I just get through it? Maybe if I don't have to see all the people, but just some of the people. And these people who push our buttons can try us and tempt us and cause us to react, not in love, but in anger 
anger towards people who demand love even though they're acting unlovable. Isn't that a fun thing? But can we just be honest, whether it's the Christmas season or another time, there are people that we just believe do not deserve our love. Let's just be honest. There's people who frustrate us and annoy us. There's people that have brought trouble into our lives and act like it's no big deal. And can we be honest too? This might be harder. That we are likely that person in someone else's life. I would love to think that I am perfect in all of my interactions and that every relationship is strong. But I know that I can act in such a way that communicates that I shouldn't deserve a person's love. How do I know that? I'm a sinner. And I'm far from perfect. And I am sure that my sin frustrates others as I make much of myself. And can we be honest too that no matter how frustrating personal relationships can be, that all of that is just a dim reflection of just how unlovable we act in the presence of a holy God? Church, we need this reminder in the Christmas story of the condescending love of Jesus Christ. Love that has been brought low so that we could be forgiven and free. This love is not only a gift for us, but as Paul says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, he says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a love, it's an attitude that we are to have towards each other. Like we all want to receive love, right? Doesn't it feel good to be loved? It does. It does. Let's, let's just be okay with that. And we love feeling loved by those that we know that care about us. But how often do we model that love in situations when people frustrate us and push our buttons and grade us? And like, you know, do you ever, this is the danger of cell phones, right? And caller ID. Do you ever like, get a text message or a phone call and you're just thinking, not today. (laughs) Christmas reminds all of us that we are called to love each other with selfless love. Love that does not count wrongs. Love that gives and gives and gives. So let's look into the text and consider the greatness of this love as we consider the gift of Jesus. Now, as a side, this section of Scripture in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 is considered one of the most beautiful and mysterious sections of the New Testament. It is quite possible the poetic nature of this passage that formed an early hymn for the church that was sung. Like they sang the words of what we read here in Philippians 2, 5 and following about who Jesus Christ is. 
And it begins with a call to have an attitude. Not a bad attitude, but a certain kind of attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we just stopped there and it was period, end of sentence, it would be enough. Have the attitude of Jesus Christ. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, and you from the first person perspective of receiving the good gift that he has provided, sit under the shadow of the loving, gracious God who is kind to you, a friend to you, is gracious and merciful, who is forgiving. And you sit under the shadow of that and you think, oh my, what a great Savior we have. Paul says, now go be like that. And you might think, and you might be saying to me, Pastor, I'm not perfect like Jesus was perfect. I'll never measure up to that. Can I just say, take it up with God? Because he's telling us to have this attitude. This isn't Pastor Todd entering into the text and saying, can you just do this more? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church in Philippi and says to every believer that will pick up the pages of this letter, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the great thing about it is it's a comma, not a period. And he says, now let me show you the attitude. And the attitude is found in verses 6 and following. This is what Paul says about the attitude that we are to put on. The attitude of Christ who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the attitude that Jesus has? It's an attitude of humility to go low, to condescend. That's what it means to condescend. We sometimes use it in a negative sense, like that was a condescending statement. No, this is going low. This is reaching down. And it's rooted in what Jesus did for us. When Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, in verse 6, that word form refers to the outward appearance that accurately reveals the inward nature. The form showed us that although he existed in the form of God, right? The outward appearance, that the inward reality that Jesus has always been God. He has always eternally been God. Jesus didn't show up in Matthew and Luke and was created. He is eternally existent. He is God. He has always been. 
and will always be. What Paul is saying here about Jesus would be like me watching a golfer perform at the highest level, winning a major, and saying that as I watched him, his form was excellent. And what am I saying by that statement? What I mean by that is that the outward expression of his inward ability showed that he was playing excellent golf. His form was great. And Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, his very essence is that he is God. And there's something else that we need to look at in verse 6. That word existed is in the perfect tense. And what that means is that Jesus is continually bearing the full nature of God because he is always God. We need to see this if we're going to truly understand this attitude of love that Jesus showed for us in his coming to earth. We need to consider the humility of Jesus in coming to earth. Because Paul says, although he is God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea behind the phrase, to be grasped, is that Jesus did not consider his deity and his coming as something to hold on to. It's not like when the baby was born, he was reaching up to heaven to hold on to some kind of deity that rightfully is his. But that when the baby was born and laid in a manger, he took on flesh. And he did not grasp for what he rightfully could hold on to. Now you contrast that with the example of Satan who wanted to be like God or even Adam who ate of the fruit and wanted to be like God. Jesus, who is already God, did not hold on to his deity when he came to rescue us, but he freely let go. And he humbled himself. Paul says in verse 7, but he emptied himself He emptied himself. The word for emptied in the Greek has called theologians to call this truth what is referred to as the kenosis of Jesus. And you're thinking, great. What does that mean? Well, kenosis means empty. Well, what is Paul saying? What is he empty of? Well, we can certainly say that it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. Jesus did not cease being God when he came to the earth. We need to settle that and know that. Because if we forget that or don't believe that, that's heresy. Jesus never ceased to be God And that baby crying in a manger is God himself. And as Paul will say in Colossians, that baby in the manger is holding that manger together. Because it's in him and through him and by him that all things are held together. And when that baby grew up in the home of Joseph and Mary... 
He was always God. Well, we've talked about this before, but just the very real, very real reality that Joseph and Mary knew they're never going to win an argument against their son. Right? He's always God. His half-brothers, they're never going to win. He's always God. When Jesus was ministering for the three and a half years that he walked this earth with his disciples, he was always God. And we see glimpses of that as he knew where people were and he knew the thoughts uh, and the, 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 the affections of the heart. And he spoke the scriptures with authority that confounded the scribes and teachers. And he performed miracles and raised people from the dead and forgave sin. And he did things only God can do. Jesus never stopped being God. But what did Jesus do when he emptied himself? Because Paul says he is fully God and fully man at the same time. What did he do? Well, he laid aside the glory and freedom that his former existence afforded him when he came to the earth. He laid it aside. He emptied himself of what it meant to be God in the midst of people. He's always God. But he didn't walk around demanding that he was treated like he was always God. He emptied himself. And he took on, as Paul says, being in the likeness of men, flesh. What do we know about Jesus and his ministry? He got hungry, he was tired, all the things that God isn't. And more importantly, when he laid aside the glory and freedom that his former manner of existence afforded him, he became dependent on the Father in a different sense that he had been formerly. He gave up his rights as God the Son. That's what it means to empty himself. He gave up the rights. And we live in a culture and in a nation and in a world where we want to hold on to our rights. And Jesus is our example that to be his disciple, we give up our rights. We give up our rights for the sake of others. That's crazy, right? Some of you this morning don't like to hear that. And that's okay. Because that's what Jesus, and that's how Jesus wants us to live and act. He took the form of a bondservant, which means a slave, being made in the likeness of men. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but that he poured himself out. He emptied himself. He poured himself out, like Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, as he was poured out to death. His life was an offering poured out for us. This speaks to the humility of Christ. Jesus willingly poured himself out as the sacrifice for our sins. He, in the likeness of men, as Paul says in verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see that? Do you see the humility 
He being God himself, laid it all aside and took on a likeness to be like us who are limited. Now, the one thing that is different about Jesus in taking on the likeness is he didn't have a sin nature. He had no earthly father. He was still perfect. He took on the likeness of men by taking on the suit of creation. The creator takes on the suit of creation. Jesus became a bondservant, a slave to the will of the Father. He submitted to the Father in the plan of redemption, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Every breath of the baby born is breathed, leading him to the cross. Every moment of his life is leading him to die for our sins. Every second of his life points him to his crucifixion. And it's not just any death, as Paul says. And remember, Paul's writing to a Roman audience. The church in Philippi was a a Roman city. But it's a death even a death on a cross. Crucifixion was so cruel that the Roman citizens were exempt from it. Only the worst criminals underwent crucifixion. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on that cross. Our God took on flesh. He humbled himself and died so that we could be forgiven. Church, if we don't see the love behind this, then we miss the whole point of Christmas. We miss it all. Every moment of his life was lived in full obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus endured shame and abuse and laid it aside, laid aside his right to just take care of it, to call legions of angels, to put an end to it right there so that he could redeem his fallen creation and bring that creation back to him. And the wonderful good news is that Paul says in verses 9 through 11 that there is a reason based on what Jesus did. Even dying on the cross and being obedient to the point of death, Paul says, for this reason, God highly exalted him. This one who left heaven and made himself low God highly exalted. Now, what is that referring to? Well, the first thing, and it's just just kind of an interesting grammatical thing, that word highly exalted in the Greek means super exalted, like the highest exalted you could get. But what does it refer to? It refers to his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification that Jesus is at the highest place as he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, who experienced the highest humiliation, the perfect one who died, and not just any death, died our death on a cross and was a public spectacle for the crowds that day in Jerusalem, has been exalted by God the Father as he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we go back to the exhortation of verse 5. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. What's the attitude? Go low. Love well. Even the unlovable. Even the people that irritate you and frustrate you and push your buttons. Even the people that you are thinking about, I'm going to have to see them. I'm going to have to hear the words come out of their mouth that drive me crazy. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus displayed true selfless love in that he laid all rights and position aside so that he could be exalted and that we could receive forgiveness from our sin and be brought into God's family. Christmas not only reveals God's amazing love for us, but Christmas also challenges us to display God's amazing love towards one another. There is no better way to show love to someone else, even the unlovable, by humbly serving them by following Jesus' example. And the question that you need to ask yourself when you are confronted in challenging situations with a person who is pushing your buttons is, am I loving this person the same way that Jesus showed love to me? Have fun with that question. How did he show love to me when I was acting unlovable? And let's be radical in modeling this love this Christmas season and beyond. Knowing that when we love this way, we obey the words of our Savior who said in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.